right. Let's find ourselves in this book. We're all characters now in this book, each one of us. Kind of, uh, we're not the principal characters perhaps, we're kind of those guys hidden in the back, you know, how in a movie you've got the multitudes just thronging around, the extras as they would be called. So we're, we're an extra somewhere in here and it's important in the script to find where it is that we're just eavesdropping and kind of spying on the episodes that are taking place before us. We're on page 154. Chapter 15, The Cauliflower Robbery. And uh, the last paragraph that we were contemplating was this. So I'll read it again just so that mm. we find uh, kind of that thread of thought we were on. All thoughts vibrate eternally in the cosmos. By deep concentration, a master is able to detect the thoughts of any mind living or dead. Thoughts are universally and not individually rooted. A truth cannot be created but only perceived. The erroneous thoughts of man result from imperfections in his discernment. The goal of yoga science is to calm the mind that without distortion it may mirror the divine vision in the universe. So we were talking about two things here. One, how every thought we think, have ever thunk, and will ever think in the future, is constantly putting out into the universe. As Master says here, all thoughts vibrate eternally in the cosmos, which means it just remains in there. It's being, you know, the universe is being flooded vibrationally with certain frequencies and the more those frequencies become stronger because those are the thoughts that are being um, kind of transmitted by each of us those frequencies become the universal consciousness and we were talking about how right now whatever the world is going through we're tuning into a certain frequency that the majority of us are just putting out over and over again, be it fear, be it hatred, be it uh, division, separation, whatever it is right now that each of us know and we can easily see is going on around us, be it also great joy and compassion and understanding which are equally present, but all of that are frequencies that are available to us to attune ourselves to. And this is what this line here means. Thoughts are universally and not individually rooted. And we talked about it a little last time, but just to emphasize that thought again, that we don't create our thoughts, that we're, they're universally present, and it is our, you can say, both job, and this is just how it's going on, is we're attuning to these thoughts depending on where our consciousness is at the moment. When we go into a low state of consciousness, be it anger, be it in a mood, when we get frustrated, when we get very self-absorbed, the particular thoughts that we can attract in that moment can only vibrate and resonate with that mood, with that downward flow of energy. So if you are upset about something, it doesn't matter if people around you are trying to help you, if somebody comes and tries to cheer you up. In that moment, you can only see everybody as, you know, you can't even rise up 
to the thought of joy that somebody is trying to transmit to you while that person's right here in front of you trying to give you joy but you're unable to receive it in that moment and so oftentimes when a person's in a mood the simplest thing is to let them be let that energy kind of dissipate before you can come to them and start moving that life force up similarly when you're very joyful when you're in a state just everything just feels good even the little things that would otherwise bother you those little imperfections that you see those little it's eccentricities in other people that sometimes would be your trigger now it just doesn't matter so much and even that's like oh isn't that sweet isn't that cute the same thing that bothered you now seems just like a quaint little aspect of a person and that's just because you can't in that moment receive a thought that says that's bad that's not good that's negative if only this would change in that joy and that's why when we talk about our nature being joy and that we're seeking that bliss we're seeking it not just because you know isn't that what we all want it is in that state finally the perfection of this world that we also seek we're seeking perfection that's where it's expressed because then finally it's like wow all is truly well every person is exactly who they need to be and not one aspect whether it's a cir- circumstance a situation a person a thought a word none of it feels disharmonious to your being because that joy overrides everything and so that's what's going on in the world constantly it's solely based on our level of consciousness now most of us have a base level kind of a standard center of gravity where we all are and it's kind of goes between the top and the bottom and we get magnetized one way or the other uh, depending on so many factors so masters however because they're not subject to the dual pulls whether upward or downward in fact there is no up and down for them anymore for them the entire universe is an open book everything is available to them to tune into if for example swami sri yukteswar decided you know what i want to figure out the uh, figure out how quantum physics works instantly he'll just have to attune himself to the theories of quantum physics that already exist and he could become a very very well known scientist if that was the direction he chose in fact that is how most scientific discoveries are made as well einstein talked about the entire theory of relativity coming to him in a flash because he was in that state that particular frequency he was so attuned to it that the moment he was open to receive the entirety of that theory came to him musicians talk about how in a moment of inspiration entire melodies are just given to them again because they place themselves in attunement and this is very important for us as disciples because this means the consciousness and the frequency and the vibration of our guru is ever present and the only thing that's stopping from it becoming our consciousness is our attunement to it because we so often just go out of attunement we're more attuned to the latest um, iphone models to the latest uh, you know fairness creams or whatever it is that people are they were more attuned to uh, the netflix shows that are about to come out next month and so therefore naturally that's where all our energy is going to be we're going to be subject to the ups and downs of that reality but the moment we get more attuned to the frequency and the vibration of the great masters and especially as a disciple to your guru 
then his thoughts become your thoughts his consciousness becomes your consciousness and then his guidance no longer becomes subtle he doesn't have to move 300 different pieces around you just so that you get it then you're just in that flow what we would call incomplete attunement with divine will and that's what yogananda is talking about here shri yukteswar ji in the story picked up the thought of that one man and his deep desire for a cauliflower in that moment and then he directed that man guided him where to where that cauliflower would be showed him the path made sure he took nothing else because in the story it said money was kept and gold was kept but none of that was touched just that cauliflower and so that's how that little comical episode played out but the laws behind that episode are vast and have great ramifications for us in our daily lives i was thinking about how important it's for us to keep our awareness our consciousness always uplifted so we can really tune into the right thoughts that are constantly going through the cosmos and that's the power that meditation brings in our daily lives meditation is like that magnet that is constantly pulling our awareness our consciousness as highest as we possibly can so every day we can tune to the best and the right course of action I would like to share this very brief story of Yogananda once was walking with one disciple and they were going through one of his properties in the US I think it was in his property in Encinitas so Yogananda and this disciple were walking and they saw Rajasi Yanakananda which was Yogananda's most advanced disciple And this other disciple who was walking next to master he say oh i forgot to tell something to rajasi let me just tell him and yogananda stopped him and said please do not disturb disturb him right now uh, rajasi was in deep meditation and yogananda told to this disciple you have no idea how much the depth of rajasi's meditation is helping this mission and when i heard this story it really it really struck me how much a meditation can really uplift whatever project you are involved in uh, in whatever situation you are and how important it is for us to open ourselves to receive that guidance that is really going to free us from that particular karma radio and television have brought the instantaneous sound and sight of remote persons to the firesides of millions the first faint scientific imitations that man is an all pervading spirit so as we said last time the masters see all scientific discoveries as well as this directional movement ah 
you know, through the radio, through television, we're starting to open ourselves to the fact that nobody's too far from me. Oh, I want to like, listen to somebody in the United States. And now, of course, with our cell phones and with FaceTime and whatnot, which the masters didn't have at that time, we're just, it's like nobody, distance, space, time, all of them have started to become irrelevant. So when we talk about space and time is an illusion and those words seem a little too far-fetched and it's like, how can it be an illusion? Here I am so much uh, kind of hemmed in by space and time, yet every day we break the barriers of space and time. And that's meant to show us and show our consciousness that, wait a minute, if you can do this with other people, if you can cross over oceans in a second, then of course your consciousness too can be all-pervading. If you can use instruments to bring in and bridge space and time, why not use the human instrument as well? And even scientific discoveries should be a means of encouragement to propel us and say, wait a minute, if this can be achieved in the world, it can be achieved in me as well. And then you just kind of get excited about, hey, I want to become a, ra a perfect radio station. I want to become this perfect television. I want to see far away what my master is doing right now. I want to tune into galaxies far away how the stars are being created. That's how we truly learn the secrets of the universe not necessarily by the slow process of reading about it after somebody else has discovered it. Very strange, and this is a Nobel Prize winner saying, very strange, very wonderful, seemingly very improbable phenomena may yet appear, which when once established will not astonish us anymore, that we are now astonished at all that science has taught us during the last century. This is what science is. Everything that was considered a miracle 100, 200 years ago now is commonplace for us. If some of us were to kind of get in a time machine and go back a couple hundred years, you know, and start showing our cell phones, I mean, we'd probably Even when be... Co computer came. <laughs> yeah, I, I was mean, like, oh, like oh. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> but, you know, we'd probably be burned at the stake for like witchcraft or something. Even but email. <laughs> when the email was created, I was like, wow, my God, you can send a <laughs> And at that message. time, it was such a slow process. It was like, the whole connection. And, but that was so fast for us. And I was like, wow, I can't believe it. And now if we have to wait just one second more for something to move, we feel like, oh, why is this so slow? So you can only imagine how as we move forward, I mean, it's just going to be an amazingly different reality which now we would consider, nah, ye ho sakta. you know, this, this is not possible. But back then it'll be, this is all that we've ever known. Future generations will look back at us and think of us as so primitive. <laughs> it is assumed that the phenomenon which we now accept without surprise do not excite our astonishment because they are understood. But this is not the case. If they do not surprise us, it is not because they are understood, it is because they are familiar. Let's take a moment, let this... Remember the helicopter is here to remind us to pause every now and then. And until that sound disappears, for us to find that stillness and that silence within. So he says, it is not because it is understood, it is because it is familiar. For if that which is not understood ought to surprise us, we should be surprised at everything. 
the falling of a stone thrown in the air, the acorn which becomes an oak, the mercury which expands when it is heated, iron that is attracted by a magnet, phosphorus which burns when it is rubbed. So it's not so much that intellectually we understand things. I mean, I, I don't understand how my stomach digests food. Maybe you do. You know, I just know if I put something in my mouth, somehow it works and things happen and I feel good about it. I don't know how our lungs take in oxygen. I don't know how blood courses through our veins. Similarly, I don't know how gravity works. So it's not like we have to understand these concepts. It's that we have to familiarize ourselves with them. And how does one familiarize himself with such things, even if he hasn't fully understood it? It is by practice. Um, I don't understand how meditation fully works. But as I practice it and I see that it works, just as, as I practice eating and I see that something happens, then I don't need to understand every aspect of it. I don't need to understand which acid is being released and at what time, and where in my intestines, what is happening. So sometimes we make these unnecessary blocks because we need to know how many chakras are there and oh, how many dimensions are there. And we get so caught up in the essentially uselessness of the spiritual world. What difference does it make? Do you know how many galaxies are there? No, but here we are, we're living our lives, we're moving forward. So what's the dimensions going to, what difference is it that going to make in your life? How many chakras you have and how many petals each chakra has? What difference will that make to you right now? Look instead for familiarizing with the experience of that stillness, of joy, of love. And then that's there nothing else matters just as we don't look to understand how my computer works i'm not in, i'm not trying to open my computer up all the time and say wait a minute what did this button do Ooh, what did this button do i'm just so happy that it works and i'm familiar with it and so that's what we need to do with the spiritual path as well just keep familiarizing ourselves with the experience that the path is just waiting to give us A humorous occurrence took place a few days after I had been so implausibly robbed of a cauliflower. A certain kerosene lamp, this is Yogananda of course saying, could not be found. Having so lately witnessed my guru's omniscient insight, I thought he would demonstrate that it was child's play to locate the lamp. Master perceived my expectation. With exaggerated gravity, he questioned all ashram residents. A young disciple confessed that he had used the lamp to go to the well in the backyard. Sri Yukteswar gave the solemn counsel, Seek the lamp in the well. I rushed there, no lamp. <laughs> Crestfallen, I returned to my guru. He was now laughing heartily without compunction for my disillusionment. Too bad I couldn't direct you to the vanished lamp. I am not a fortune teller. With twinkling eyes, he added, I am not e even a satisfactory Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I realized that Master would never display his powers when challenged or for a triviality. That's another aspect of the guru-disciple relationship that we often take for granted. We, in fact, would prefer our guru to just be like a fortune teller. Tell me what this is. Tell me what I have to do. Tell me what my problem is. Tell me how I fix this. Take away my karma. Do, you know, it's just like, we really, all we really want is like a machine where we put a one rupee coin and a button the buyer and it just tells you, you know, do this. 
we're not looking to our guru for freedom. We're just looking to our guru for ease and convenience <laughs> and miracles. You know, just make my life easy. That's what I want from you. I don't, I don't want anything else. So when Yogananda said, ah, the guru, you know, he's like, now he will show how, let's look for the lamp here or there. And of course, Sri Yukteswar, as always, you see the sense of humor that they have. Really, it's not enough that they say, I don't do this. I'm not a fortune teller. They have to show us. They have to help us experience the fact that this is not the role of the guru. He's not here for us to solve our everyday problems. Oh, I'm having trouble in my relationship. Oh, Guruji, won't you help me with my relationships and make it perfect? Because if my relationship is perfect, then my life becomes perfect. Except the moment the relationship starts getting perfect, now I have trouble in my work, then I have trouble in the knee that's paining a little bit, you know, and just so on and so forth. There's no end to the supplications we make to the Guru or to God or to any deity. And that's an important aspect that we all need to kind of step back from. That's not their role. They're here to let you go through the pain of the knee <laughs> until you realize that neither pain nor comfort is ever going to create that state of complete satisfaction. Pain, no pain. Joy, no joy. Satisfaction, no satisfaction. It's just never going to be enough for us. And so, of course... Master finally realized that that's what was going on. Now we, we will never know if he found that lamp or not. Delightful weeks sped by. Sri Yukteswar was planning a religious procession. And he asked me to lead the disciples over the town and beach of Puri. The festive day dawned as one of the hottest of the summer. I yeah, I like the fact that you can already see, sorry to stop not at here. All. I like the fact that Sri Yudeshwar was already preparing Yogananda to become a leader of sorts. Mm. And he started very small, small things like he put him first in charge of the kitchen and then in charge of the guests that would come and now in charge of leading this group of young disciples. So, I like the fact that Sri Yudeshwar started with Yogananda from the very basics and trained him gradually so Yogananda could have the experience of what it means to lead also at a practical level. He had to find out, even in the material world, what works, what doesn't, to make sure that things worked properly for larger events, the day-to-day -day running of the ashram. I think this is a beautiful aspect and a beautiful way that Sri Yudeshwar chose to train Yogananda, not just telling him, you are going to become, you know, the father of the yoga in the world. I mean, he just very humbly just gave Yogananda very little humble practical jobs so he could have a strong foundation and have a perfect balance of what it means to have practicality and spirituality hand by hand. Hand in hand. Hand in hand. So I, I really love um, the fact that we can see Sri uh, Yudesh was just redirecting uh, Yogananda one day at a time, one project at a time, one 
month at a time, <laughs> one year at a time. I didn't tune into that. That's a very important point, really. Um, it's a very nice point that you brought up. Just being able to do simple, humble, you know, jobs. So many of us, especially when we come onto the spiritual path, even within the ashram life, even on the spiritual path, we're so quick to, you know, separate and say, ah, this is the spirit. I'm, I'm waiting the when I can do that job, you know, I want to do what that guy is doing. And we often never get to what that guy is doing because we don't learn the most simple things that we have to learn in the relaxation of accepting what the Guru has given us in each moment. All of us are so restless, even at our regular work, right? I mean, just like, we're always, I want to be the CEO, I want to, you know, it's just, we're never able to fully embrace the place that we have been given, the role that we've been given. And because we're not able to do that, most of us, even when we do achieve that higher role or position, we're still unsatisfied. Because at that time, that same restlessness wants us then to do something else. And it also speaks to where people have this issue with, I'm looking for the purpose in my life. And there's just this restlessness around this purpose of my life. And if there's no relaxation in where you are and trying to find, if I have been given this particular you know, setting, what could it be that the masters, that God wants me to learn right here, right now? Mm -hmm. And when we embrace that and learn to work with more simple realities, only then do subtler realities begin to reveal themselves to us. So it's a, it's a very, very, yeah. very important point, especially from coming in a spiritual setting. If you've been in an ashram, if you've worked in a spiritual organization, um, there's just this fallacy of what spiritual work is. It's teaching, it's, you know, sharing the this, it's only doing chanting, it's only sitting and meditating all the time. But no, it, in fact, a lot of it is shaving off your mm -hmm. ego personality and your karmas by doing things that um, are just so basic that the mind kind of doesn't give any attention to it. And the mind's just flitting away looking for the more prestigious aspects of the spiritual path. The truth is that once you have committed yourself to any spiritual path, you have committed yourself to freedom, to work on your ego, um, every little thing you do is important. Mm. Everything matters. So who is telling you to already divide what's spiritual and what's important versus what's not? important and spiritual so uh, if you are on the spiritual path please trust that god is watching your sincerity your commitment your willingness to change yourself and if you are doing that tiny insignificant job don't underestimate it because god himself is watching you Perhaps he has asked through somebody else for you to do that job because he knows only through that specific task you are learning something. So there is a lot of trust that needs to happen from our side. Once we are giving or putting our lives into the Guru's hands, into God, 
let's all trust that he knows what he's doing with our lives. He, he's running the universe and he's uh, holding the universe together. So don't you think uh, he knows what we need? So let's add a little bit of trust to the process and, and just realizing that whatever is being asked of us has a purpose and that purpose is just to free ourselves from our own preconceived ideas of what the spiritual path should look like according to our wishes and desires. If you don't fulfill the purpose of those little things, they'll just come back again and again and That's again true. and again and again That's and true. again. We're here in this ashram and we're going through a process that we went through four, five, six years ago when we lived out on the rural land. And, you know, it was a process of things falling apart and breaking and not working and electrical problems and plumbing problems. And Water not coming. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> on a slightly higher octave now, I think we some lessons have been learned, but... You just see if you are aware enough these patterns that repeat themselves again and again and each time that we set them aside, oh, you know, why is this happening rather than just saying, wait a minute, why is this happening again? What did I not gain yeah. last time? What did I not get last time? And then you say, how can I do it better now? Because I definitely don't want to repeat this again. And all of us will find these patterns playing in our lives. Several of us have perhaps been on the path long enough and still we find ourselves falling into the same traps. It's just we're not, we don't pay enough attention to the things leading up to the trap. Mm -hmm. And if we just watch what led up to the trap, we start to realize, ah, ah, I went through this before and I went through this before and I went through that before. And to ask ourselves, how can I do this better this time? How can I not kind of just let it pass by because yeah karma is finite but the energy that it contains is infinite so even if a situation passes but if the energy is not resolved it's just going to come back again as long as we vibrate with that unlearned lesson the karma will return and so yogananda who has been asked to lead this procession says it's the hottest day of the summer Guruji, how can I take the barefooted students over the fiery sands? I will tell you a secret, Master responded. The Lord will send an umbrella of clouds. You shall all walk in comfort. I happily organized the procession. Our group started from the ashram with the satsang banner designed by Sri Yukteswar. It bore the symbol of the single eye, the telescopic gaze of intuition. No sooner had we left the hermitage that the part of the sky which was overhead became filled with clouds as though by magic. To the accompaniment of astonished ejaculations from all sides, a very light shower fell, cooling the city streets and the burning seashore. The soothing drops descended during the two hours of the parade. The exact instant at which our group returned to the ashram, the clouds and rain passed away tracelessly. You see how God feels for us? Master replied after I had expressed my gratitude. The Lord responds to all and works for all. Just as he sent rain at my plea, so he fulfills 
any sincere desire of the devotee. Seldom do men realize how often God heeds their prayers. He is not partial to a few, but listens to everyone who approaches him trustingly. His children should never, should ever have implicit faith in the loving kindness of their omnipresent Father. Again, another one of those kind of issues that we have with God, which is He doesn't listen to all our prayers. Isn't that one of those like, you're always fulfilling, you know, this person's prayer and those masters seem to, whatever they put, say, happens. And of course, there's so many laws at play here. And mm. since we're not interested in the laws, we're only interested in our desires. We're never able to tune into how prayer must be said. And here, Sri Yukteswar is giving us one aspect of prayer being said trustingly and with implicit faith. But previously, in talking about how we transmit thoughts, Yogananda also talks about what's most important in transmitting thoughts is deep concentration and a very highly developed will. Will is the power of that life force that we're able to kind of gather. So if I have to do something that's difficult, I have to put a lot of will. And so the difficulty is, is actually being overcome by that concentrated effort of willpower that is being put out, not necessarily by the action alone. And image sim similarly, when we put out prayers, we have to look at how concentrated and powerful is this prayer? Or is this prayer just being tucked in the middle of 600 other thoughts that are happening simultaneously? That it's just hidden? Or is it being said, I want this, but then every action that we put out and every other thought we put out is in complete opposition to the one thing that you want. God, I want freedom. Oh, but my neck, my, you know, my TV show is about to begin, so we'll come back to that. So God's confused. He says, wait a minute, do you really want freedom? Because it doesn't seem that you want freedom. Oh, you, do, you really want me to overcome this health issue, but here you are living this really unhealthy lifestyle. I mean, so what is it that you really want? So there are so many layers to a prayer. A prayer is not just, I have told God what I want. A prayer is, have I put everything into that prayer and then is everything in my mind, in my action, corresponding and supporting the prayer that I have made? Or have I made a prayer kind of just saying, Ki, you fix it and I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm going to be exactly how I am. I'm going to live as a you know, desire-filled life as I want, but you must give me the freedom that I want. And so, of course, Sri Yukteswar has, and every master, they've worked on these things. So for them, any thought that they put out, any prayer, any plea to the infinite that they put out is instantly granted just because of that complete attunement to that frequency, of that, that power. There is no other cross-current of thought of ego motivation, of some hidden desire there. It's so clean, it's so perfect, and every word, every action, every thought that they have subsequently is in perfect harmony with the prayer and plea that they put out. That's why they are responded instantaneously. And it's not like God's not waiting to respond to our prayers. It's just that by the time our prayer gets to it, it so gets to him, it's so mangled. It's so unrecognizable. <laughs> it's like he can't even figure out <laughs> what does this guy want? And the truth is like even 
before we say the prayer that we think we have come up with this super amazing prayer that God has to respond to us, I mean, He already knows even before we come up with the prayer. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, we think we are approaching to God, trying to convince Him, trying to share what we just felt, you know, we should be praying for. And He's like, oh yeah, of course, I already knew that. But guess what? Right now is not the moment. Because if I give you what you are asking for, and it's not in tune with your karmic pattern is going to really affect your life or is going to bring um, something that is not going to help your spiritual growth. So thank God that sometimes our prayers are not always answered because God knows that it's better right now to hold that prayer until we are ready to receive what we are praying for. So it, this is such a subtle aspect. In fact, a whole <laughs> class should be given about how to pray, when, for what, and all those things. But yeah, be, be very mindful when, when you pray and make sure that that what you are praying for, uh, the real intention behind this is because you want to be free from specific attachment, a specific desire, or, or a specific situation that is holding you back spiritually. Only then a prayer really has power. Sri Yukteswar sponsored four yearly festivals at the equinoxes and solstices when his students gathered from far and near. The winter solstice celebration was held in Serampur. The first one I attended left me with a permanent blessing. We've just had the winter solstice a couple of days ago, so we're in perfect harmony with what's going on right here in this book. <clears throat> now there's a whole story here um, in which Yogananda goes into um, quite a technical description of sound of music he talks about how what the tals are he talks about what the ragas are and how they're you know he says the six basic ragas they branch into 126 derivative raginis and putras and so it's a very technical read um, and i would recommend that you read it yourself mm -hmm. Because there's nothing particularly except it's, uh, you'll gain a lot of great knowledge into the subtle science of music itself. But why he gives this little um, kind of preface is because he's talking about during the, these um, solstices and equinoxes, one of the main things that happens is kirtan, sankirtan, which is a lot of chanting. And so from chanting, he kind of goes into this expression of what music really is and how in the Vedas the music was seen as a divine science. And so we kind of skip over some of the technical stuff because that's something you can read at leisure. And he comes to the point where he says, the ancient rishis discovered these laws of sound alliance between nature and man. I love that. Sound mm. alliance. 
that there is an alliance between nature and man based on sound, which means primarily based on a vibratory kind of communication. Because nature is an objectification of Om, the primal sound of vibratory word, man can obtain control over all natural manifestations through the use of certain mantras and chants. And so we know about this, we know about the different mantras, you've got the Gayatri mantra, you've got the Mahamrityunjaya mantra, you've got the Maha mantra, you've got, I mean, you know, there's just mantras galore. But what we don't know and we don't really tune into is that each mantra has very, very specific, um, both when it should be said, how it should be said, the intonations, where the voice is to be placed, because the vibration that the mantra holds, just as our words, you know, I could just be saying Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya right now, and it would have certain power, there's a certain kind of uh, power in that vibration itself, but it won't create the effect that I want that mantra to, because I have not yet understood vibrationally what relationship that mantra holds with all of creation, and that's what Yogananda is asking us to tune into. In all the chants that we do, um, why we sing primarily, you, you must have by now after so many months of li listening to us chant, apart from the Sanskrit chants that we do, which are more traditional, we do so many of these kind of English chants that Paramahansa Yogananda translated and some of them are a little complicated and some of them, you know, are uh, you're not familiar with those melodies. But Yogananda said that I chanted each one of them until I received an ecstatic response from God. And he says, and by doing that, I have essentially surcharged these chants with that potential for an ecstatic response to all those who sing it. And this is what a saint can do. So when we talk about even Om Namah Shivaya or Gayatri Mantra, they weren't just kind of created. They were given power by somebody who had that power to kind of give it to. And so we're tuning in, not just to the vibration of the mantra or the chant, we're trying to tune into that original saint, the original self-realized master who put that vibration into manifestation and try to feel his consciousness as well as we do that. Here there is this, in historical documents, it, they tell us of the remarkable powers possessed by Mia Tansen. We all know stories of Tansen, we read them as we were children, who was a 16th century court musician for Akbar the Great. Commanded by the emperor to sing a night raga when the sun was overhead, Tansen intoned a mantra that instantly caused the whole palace precincts to become enveloped in darkness. And these are the stories we heard about Tansen. He would sing a certain raga and it would start to rain because it was the monsoon raga that he sung even though it was in the middle of summer and so on and so forth because he had really just attuned himself perfectly to that vibrational alliance between nature and man. And that's what music can do for us. That's what chanting can do for us. This alignment to this vibrational resonance, to this alliance between us and the world around us. So it's a very, very, very powerful tool that we should use far more often than we do. For us in Ananda, especially in the way that our Guru 
his teachings are chanting before practically anything is like mandatory because it just changes it just realigns you know we've you've studied or perhaps heard of the experiments done by the japanese scientist um, imoto something or the other <laughs> with the water molecules and how those crystals form with putting the words or saying certain words or playing certain music and us being you know 70% water that's not just the world but individually us even on a physical level imagine what certain kinds of music are doing to us versus certain these kinds of music doing to us if the music you listen to is very dissonant very loud very kind of ego affirming boom 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 that down beat when there's a lot of down beat that's the muladhar chakra and it's like the energy is being drawn it it says relate to me relate to me in its most in the grossest most physical form every uh, instrument in fact goes goes and relates to the different chakras the flute's the second chakra the harp or the veena is the third the bell the gong even the harmonium is the fourth that's why the harmonium really helps open the heart and the guitar which adds little rhythm it's the third chakra it's a little bit of will power but it's the will that will be then lifted up by the harmonium but uh, you know there's not that too much even our tablas and the uh, beats that are played during chanting they're they're subtle they're not bam chaka bam chaka bam you know they're very subtle so that they're giving it grounding of the first chakra but the grounding is not drawing the energy down it's it's firming you that you can stand on it to lift yourself up so the science of music and especially spiritual music is is very very subtle and very precise mm-hmm. and so we need to start tuning into that as well not mentally and intellectually just as that nobel laureate said it's not that we need to understand it it is that we need to familiarize ourselves with it basically sound in itself has a power healing power and i would recommend for each one of you if you start becoming familiar also with the sound of silence mm. Silence has a specific vibrational sound that harmonizes our being. Right now being here at the ashram, there are moments throughout the day that if you listen carefully, you you can see, you can hear that shift of even nature just going slowing down and all the universe going into that place of silence and if you can try to whenever you have 5 minutes 10 minutes in addition to your meditation as a practice just listen the sound of silence because that's the language that god uses to speak to us to give us particular messages sometimes it's hard for me to even um, understand why people are so afraid to be alone 
to be in silence and they need to keep our senses overstimulated, the, the radio or the TV is super loud and they have to be themselves, themselves in the middle of, you know, busy, chaotic places to feel themselves, themselves safe or protected because they are not familiarized yet with the power of silence. So I would like for you, for all of us, perhaps this week, to bring that aspect and, and start exploring layers of silence and, and what it brings to our system, to our consciousness, and, and experiment uh, with that because silence has so much to offer and many of the answers that we are looking for are going to come in those moments of perfect silence. Right now at the ashram, we're still going through a settling in phase. As we said, the house still requires a lot of our attention. There's still aspects that haven't fully been sorted. But we're very much kind of moving in the direction to build both within the ashram and around spaces that are going to be silent zones, mm -hmm. times that are going to be complete silence, days perhaps where there's an entire day of silence. And we're wanting to build a kind of an energy here that gives people that experience. And so if you crave silence and are mm -hmm. unable to find it where you are and you just want to be able to experience it for a few hours, feel free or think about as a very real possibility to come. Once we've, you know, right now you may not find the ashram as silent as you'd like. I mean, it's far silenter <laughs> than the city. But, but we're very active, we're quite busy bees um, in these last few weeks and it'll probably continue for a couple of weeks more. But we think come January mm. or such, we'll really start settling into the right rhythms that we want to see established here at the ashram. Silent zone, silent time, silent days. And if that's something that calls out to you as well, just stay tuned. We'll be sharing all of that very soon as well. <laughs>